You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Trust your gut if it seems too good to be true. Because, as I said earlier, anybody knows about the old ones. Be willing to learn, be willing to admit that you don't know everything. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hello, Dave. We've got some interesting stories to share this week, and later in the show, Carol Terrio returns. She's got an interview with the head of a group that call themselves Scam Survivors. They provide online resources for people who've been victimized by scammers. And we are back. Joe, I'm going to kick things off this week. We're going to jump right into our stories. Mine comes from Google. This is their security blog. Hmm. And the article is titled, New Research, How Effective is Basic Account Hygiene at Preventing hijacking. Uh-huh. Really some interesting stuff here. This is a, a good report. I will have a link to it in the show notes, and I recommend everybody check it out. A concise report with a lot of good information in it. I'm going to do a good bit of reading directly from this because it is so concise. It's actually hard to distill down any more concise than it is. Yeah, I'm looking at the article now. It's maybe like a two-minute read. Basically, uh, Google teamed up with some researchers from New York University and University of California, San Diego, Mm -hmm. to try to find out how effective basic account hygiene is at preventing hijacking. Now, of course, Google has some built-in tools where they try to prevent, you know, people taking over your accounts, bots, so on and so forth. But they gathered up some really interesting statistics here. Mm -hmm. Uh, They said if you've signed into your phone or you've set up a recovery phone number, this is with your Google account, they have uh, two-step verification. They found that an SMS code sent to a recovery phone number blocked 100% of automated bots. Right. 96% of bulk phishing attacks. Huh. And 76% of targeted attacks. It stopped the automated attacks dead in their tracks. Yeah. Now, what's interesting to contrast this is they found that if you didn't have SMS enabled, Mm -hmm. the protection rates for phishing could drop as low as 10%. Right. The built-in things that Google has, they were still effective against bots, but for phishing and targeted attacks, as low as 10%. That is a wide gap. Right, right. That's on the knowledge-based authentication. Right. Knowledge-based challenges were as low as 10% effective in stopping uh, someone from taking over your account. Right. And that's where they ask you a question. What right. was the street you grew up on? What was the, what's the name and of your dog? We've talked about this before, how easy that stuff is to get. Right. What I think is fascinating here is the SMS code. When I talk about two-factor authentication or multi-factor authentication, I talk about it from least secure to most secure. Right. And I always start with SMS code because even if you get an SMS code, there are ways to social engineer that out of a person. Right. Right. And there are ways to actually to get around it and to breach other security. You can clone a SIM card or or something and actually get the code yourself. But I'm not amazed it stopped 100% of the automated attacks because that's the biggest bulk of these things, right? Mm -hmm. And when the automated attack sees a prompt for a second factor here, it's not going to continue. It's just going to stop and go on to the next account and try to breach that. Sure. 96% for a bulk phishing attack for something as simple as an SMS code, and then even 76% for targeted campaigns against an individual. That is a huge 
bump in security. Right. From 10% to 70 or right. in the 70s or the 90s, the high yes. 90s. That's, yeah. that's really good. Even just using something as simple as SMS, which is not the most secure form of multi-factor authentication, can really, really help you out. It's interesting. They bring up the point. They said, you know, given the benefits here, why don't they require them for everybody? Right. Why not just make it so that you have to do this? Yeah. I've been wondering that for a long time. We just need to move on to having multi-factor authentication as default. Yeah. Well, they say in this report that those challenges obviously introduce friction, right? but also it increases the risk of account lockout. Mm -hmm. They said in their research, 38% of users did not have access to their phone when they were challenged. Ah, That seems high to me, Yeah, but uh, that's the number they had. Hmm. Um, they said a 34% of users could not recall their secondary email address. Hmm. Right, so one, that's one of the things you can have as additional protection is a secondary email address where right. they can email you and uh, you know verify the account. And that, that is way. not not nearly as effective as even an SMS code. Correct. Automated attacks are stopped seventy three percent with a secondary email address. I'm, I'm betting that's based on an attempt to reuse a password on the secondary email attack. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the points that they make here is that they actually have an additional level. If you're someone who feels as though you are a high risk person, mm -hmm. Google has an advanced protection program. Right. And that involves physical security keys. Right. You don't even need to be a high risk person. If you go out and buy a YubiKey, or Google has their own product. I think they call it Titan. Mm -hmm. You can just use those. I use a YubiKey for my uh, Google authentication. And, you know, it was a $40 investment and it works great. Yeah. And, and they say this stops 100% of all the attacks. Yeah. Yeah. In this research, they say zero users that use the security keys fell victim to targeted phishing during right. their investigation. Right. Yeah. Targeted attacks did not work when you used a, uh, a YubiKey. So it, that, or something it, similar. it works. Right. It, it just works. works. Exactly. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, the other thing they pointed out is that Google has five things you can do right now to stay safer online. They have a, a blog post about that. Uh, we'll just go through these quickly because they are good. One okay. is uh, set up a recovery phone number or email address and mm -hmm. keep it updated. That's basically what we've been talking about. Right. Use unique passwords for yep. your accounts. We, we certainly have covered that here. Uh, keep your software up to date. That's mm -hmm. both your the software you're using, your operating system, set up two-factor authentication, something we talk about all the time. Yep. Uh, and then the, the last one, perhaps a little bit self-serving for Google, they say take the Google security checkup, uh, which goes through your Google account and gives you a, an idea of how strong it is. Right. I think Facebook has this as well. Yeah. Services. My password manager has one as well. Right. You know, right. just And it goes through and, and checks to, mm -hmm. to make sure you're doing what you should be your doing. Your password manager, I think, checks with Troy Hunt's database to see if it, anything's been in Have I Been Pwned, right? I believe so. Yeah. I believe so. But it even goes through and just, like, if it notices that I'm reusing a password somewhere, ah. it, it'll ping me and say, hey, knock it off. That's <laughs> Please, you know. Don't do this. Please, right. This, this yeah, is bad practice. Please, please allow us to generate a safer password, a unique safe password for right. you. So that's my story this week. I highly recommend you check out this article. The gap between the haves and the have-nots here was wider than I thought it would be. Yeah. That the, the difference that SMS makes, and particularly that hardware key, to basically solve this problem right. if you have a hardware key. Exactly. I was not expecting that, and uh, it's impressive. So uh, take a couple minutes and do check it out. It's worth your time. Yep. What do you have for us this week, Joe? Dave, generally, we think of social engineering as an active attack, right? Yep. I'm going to come after you and I'm going to tell you some kind of lie. Imagine, if you will, a passive form of social engineering. Go on. Right? So Forbes has this article by Susan Rowan Kelleher that touches on this topic. Okay. And the topic is USB charging stations in airports. 
and I'm going to go ahead and say anywhere for that matter. Okay, so I go to the airport. Right. My flight's delayed. My phone is getting low on power. Right. And the airport has conveniently set up a charging station for me. Right. Where I can plug into a USB port. And it's got the USB port right there on, on a wall or maybe on a desk or something. Yep. Or yep. maybe on a chair. Right. You can plug into this thing and it will provide power to your phone and charge your phone. Right. Right. As a free service. Yeah. Right. Convenient. Yes. The problem with these things is that these USB charging stations can be modified by an attacker to hmm. install malware on your phone or even to download data from your phone without your knowledge. Hmm. Right? Okay. And a friend of the CyberWire, Caleb Barlow from IBM, has a great quote in this article. <laughs> I'm going to read it exactly because it ties in to our analogy with personal hygiene. Okay. Right? And he says, plugging into a public USB port is kind of like finding a toothbrush on the side of the road and deciding to stick it in your mouth. You have no idea where that thing has been. <laughs> yeah, okay. Right. I can't unsee that. All right. right. Very good. Very good. <laughs> and that's exactly right. You really don't know what's on the other end of this. Now, imagine I'm an attacker and I want to lure people in with a sense of false security. Right. I'm going to say, well, you know, we think of the airport as a very secure place, right? Yeah. You passed through security already on your way to where you're going to sit and wait for your plane. Exactly. What are the odds that somebody has come in here and maliciously acted on these USB ports. Right. Probably low. Yeah, I'd say so. It, it may not be, though. It may be higher. And state actors are turning to this because they're targeting travelers mm. because they have a lot of valuable information. Yeah. And I guess a, a plane ticket is not an expensive thing to pay for no, to it is get not. you past that security point. That's absolutely correct. If you're targeting those folks. And I've gone through airport security with some pretty suspicious looking electronics. <laughs> yeah, the nature of the work you do. Right. Yeah. And Sir, I, I'm going to have to ask you to step aside here. There was none uh, of that, Dave. I, I said, I said, look, these are electronic prototypes I've built. If you want me to open them, explain them to you, I can do that. Because I, I was positive that they were going to say, huh, this looks kind of suspicious. Uh -huh. They didn't blink twice at it. Huh. They went through and they said, okay. And these were like cigar boxes with wires all over them. <laughs> That's right? kind of terrifying, yeah. Joe. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there are two better solutions. And Caleb talks about this in the article, but th these are things I would recommend. Number one, bring your actual power adapter with you and plug that into a 110 outlet on the wall. Mm -hmm. That's great if you're traveling domestically. If you're traveling internationally, it might be a little bit more difficult because they use different kinds of power outlets, right? Mm -hmm. But make sure you have a universal power outlet in that case. Because generally speaking, the power outlet is less likely to be a source of malicious software software than the USB port. The right. other is bring your own power bank, like a little battery pack. I have one of these. When you and I were traveling a couple of weeks ago, I used one of these to keep my phone charging so I could use the mobile uh, hotspot. It's a great idea. The third one, this is not necessarily a good option, but it's <laughs> called the USB condom. Okay. So a USB connection has four wires in it, and two of them are used for power and two of them are used for data. Okay. And what a USB condom does is it just provides no connection to the data pins. So now, even if you plug into one of these infected ports, you won't get anything malicious happening to you because there's no way for the port to communicate with your phone because there's no data connection. There's right, only power connection. Right, right, right. Now, if you recall a couple months ago, some time ago, you and I were talking about Kevin Mitnick yeah. building a prototype of malicious USB condoms. Right. Right? <laughs> so yeah. now you have that worry to go about. So, you know, you should just x-ray your USB condom to make sure it's not one of Kevin's. We all have access to x-ray machines, right, Dave? Oh, sure. Yeah, that's practical. And, and if you don't, just, just uh, you know, stop by the airport. Just go up to the folks there at the security line. Tell them that you're not actually taking a flight, but could you just run this device through? I'm just curious. I don't know what's inside of it, and I'd like to see. They'll be totally okay with that. Yeah, will they really be okay with that, Dave? No! They, <laughs> they will not be okay with that. They are completely humorless. They will not be okay with that. So... 
I guess the big picture here is right. you need to know the chain of custody. Right. Yeah. The supply chain of yeah. your products. Buy it from a, a reputable dealer. Right. Or the cable that came with your phone is probably a good product, right? Likely. Unless it was interdicted in the supply chain, but you never really know, right? And if you're a person who's likely to fall victim to that, chances are you already know that. Right. And you're going to have things in place to protect yourself from those exactly. possibilities. For the vast majority of people, this is kind of a low risk thing, you, worrying about a malicious cable. But I would say worry about these malicious USB ports in airports or anywhere else. Now, I was at uh, my daughter's graduation yesterday and they had a huge table of USB charging cables, mm. right? And mm -hmm. I was walking up, looking at them, and there was a woman across the table from me. She goes, the Apple ones are over here. And she plugs it into her phone. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> inside of my head, I'm going, no! Yeah. But yeah. I'm like, no, don't make a scene here. My favorite one was recently at a trade show at their booth. NSA had a free charging station. <laughs> <laughs> and... <laughs> And they made they made light of it, you know. They <laughs> right. They, they knew it. They 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 got the joke, you know. They they got it. So. Right. That's hilarious. By yeah. Way. Yeah. I, I'm glad to see that the NSA is not without their humor. Yes. Unlike the TSA. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> right. Right. All right, Joe. It's time to move on to our catch of the day. Joe, our catch of the day this week is a scam that is known as the trunk box scam. The trunk box scam. And this, there's an echo in here. I've and never... this comes <laughs> from the uh, website scamdetector.com. I have never heard of this scam. It's a variation uh, of stuff we've heard before, okay. as a lot of these seem to be. Right. But it goes like this. Good day. I am Mrs. Ayesha Gaddafi, the second wife of the late Mr. Ahmad El Gaddafi, El Kaisa, the commander of Libya's elite special forces and the son of Colonel Gaddafi, the Libyan leader. I'm contacting you to assist me to retrieve the sum of 50 million United States dollars being deposited in Ivory Coast by my late husband. But as we arrived here due to the political problem during the former regime of President Babu, I ordered the security company to move the consignment to their affiliate office in Jakarta, Indonesia for safekeeping, which they did via a diplomatic immunity. So I will give you every of their contact in Indonesia for retrieving of the consignment as the fund was deposited on my name. As a matter of fact, I and my only son and the entire family of my father-in-law were trapped in a bunker here in Tripoli after my late husband was captured on 12th of October 2011. I managed to sneak out with my son with the help of a security guard on duty that faithful day and crossed us to the border. Presently, I am hiding in West Africa without any other means of communication except my laptop and evidently a reliable Wi-Fi connection. Right. Uh, <laughs> I hope to arrange for my traveling out if possible to your country for an investments of this fund and to safeguard my life because I know the regime of my father-in-law has collapsed after his death. Please, for your kind assistance, I will offer you 25% of the total sum after you have retrieved the consignment. All the legal documentation concerning the deposited funds are with me. I will only write power of attorney making you the new beneficiary of the deposit so that the security company can release the consignment to you. And it goes on. I'm not going to read the whole rest of it. Uh, right. At the end, uh, the only information you need to provide is your full name, your direct telephone, your home address, your country, your age, your occupation, and a copy of your ID or passport. Mm -hmm. What could possibly go wrong here, uh, Joe? I don't know, Dave. It, you, you, you are going to have your identity stolen. That is yeah, what's going the, to happen here. At the very least, and actually over on the website where we got this from, over at scamdetector.com, they describe that this is actually pretty elaborate, that if you contact these people, they will continue to contact you. They will send you photographs of the people involved. They'll send you copies of passports. 
passports to try to set up the authenticity of this and so on and so forth. Wow. But yeah. Huh. And ultimately what they're after is they're going to have you uh, send them some money as a transfer fee ah. or something like that. Okay. So they're, they're after that transfer fee. So they're fee. not just after your identity. No, they're after about 2500 bucks or so hmm. in exchange for 25% of $50 million. Right. So uh, pretty straightforward here. I don't think there's any mysteries of what's going on, but uh, pretty good one. Yep. All right. Well, that is our catch of the day. Coming up next, we've got Carol Terrio. She has an interview with the head of a group that call themselves Scam Survivors. And we're back. Joe Carol Terrio recently spoke with a gent who heads up an organization called Scam Survivors. Now, to protect his identity, he only goes by the name of Welsh Wayne. Hmm. Here's Carol with the story. Do I have a fascinating chat for you guys to earwig on today? So in Wales, in the United Kingdom, there is a team of scam fighters who run a volunteer organization known as Scam Survivors. The idea here is to provide guidance, information, and all manner of advice to people who are being scammed. Actually, as the Welsh Wayne will explain in a second, many of the requests to scam survivors involve the person needing evidence of the scam so that they can show their loved one that the online romance or online business deal is really an evil ruse by an online thief. Imagine how awful it would be if your mom or sister, uncle, friend was obviously being fished, but they just couldn't see it from their own vantage point. Now, Wayne, who only shared his first name with me, says he fights scams anonymously. That piqued my interest. First, I asked Wayne to tell me a bit about scam survivors before I dug into how he got into this line of work and just why did he think his online identity needed to be kept anonymous. Here's Wayne. What we do is we provide as much information as we can about the scammers themselves, the emails, the phone numbers, the pictures they use. And then we have all the advice on how to deal with being scammed. So it's like a two-pronged approach to it. There's as much information on this is how to spot the scammer and then if you're scammed, this is what you need to do. Now, let's get back to you. So why are you guys using anonymous online identities for this operation? Well, we have to because we've had things like death threats. We constantly get DDoSed on the site. The first time was around three months after we started. We were on a shared host at the time. And, right. and the attack was so big, <laughs> it actually took down the entire nodes. We took down over 100 other sites as well. And we, wow. yeah, we were very politely asked to leave. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to have our own dedicated host now. So we, we are protected. It's all DDoS protected. And we're good. We still get the attacks, but even when it does happen, we don't get affected. Right. And by none it. of your identities are mentioned on your site. So the four of you are kind of behind the scenes helping people out in an anonymous fashion. Yeah. What we've done is create almost created personas, as it were where my real name is Wayne, but it's not Wayne May. Right, right. So we've all come up with real real first names, fake last names, and we've done it this way. So we don't mess up when we do interviews. So if we speak to people, I won't call somebody by their real name or I should be using their fake name. So it's a way to protect ourselves and not clip up because it would be so easy to say if my real name was Michael. 
which it, it isn't. Right. For simply to say Michael instead of Wayne. So if we all use our real first names, we're not going to mess up. And it, our first names are so common anyway, it doesn't really matter. And how did you get into this, into working with scam survivors? Well, I started off in 2005 as a scam beater. Oh. I was basically looking online one night, bored, just looking for funny things. And I found this quiz, which Nigerian spam mm-hmm. are you? So I did the quiz. It came up with some name I'd never heard of. I Googled it and I found the entire baiting community that's opened up to me. I sat there all night reading these things and laughing myself. But this is brilliant. I really want to be a part of this. So what kind of things were you reading? Like what kind of things? It was some of the ones that were more technical. There are, like some people will just mm-hmm. do a bait and do something silly and that's it. I like the whole, there, there were ones, for example, where they were taking photographs of somebody that was part of the scam and then making it appear to be footage from a mm-hmm. security camera. So it was, I kind of like that cleverness about it. So I, I joined up, I met around for a bit, uh, talking to different scammers. And then I had a romance scammer contact me. And I really didn't like it because I knew that this was really a guy pretending to be a female. How did you know? Uh, by the way he was talking, there's uh, a, a, a guy that doesn't know the female body that well is going to speak in a certain way. <laughs> okay. Uh, Enough said. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a thing on Red Dwarf where... Rima is pretending to be a female, and he turns out and said, I'm having a woman's period. <laughs> and, and that kind of way right. to speak. Right. You know, you know, no, this is not a female. So I didn't like it. I said, I, you know, I felt really uncomfortable, like I needed to scrub myself down with bleach after. And somebody said, well, if you felt that way, they were having to pretend to be a female. Imagine how they felt. And that was my light bulb moment. I felt uncomfortable. I'm going to make them feel 10 times as bad. And I got a real kick out of making them feel bad. Are you talking threats, things like that? No, no, no. Just, okay, just, so trying to make it too intimate for them to try and make them feel uncomfortable the way they did to yeah. you. Gotcha. Yeah, exactly. And there were very few people actually dealing with romance scammers at the time. And people would come to me say, my mother, my brother is being scammed at the moment. Would you bait this scammer to help convince them that it is a scam? Mm-hmm. So over the course of about a year or so, I started dealing less with having fun with the scammers and more helping the people who were being scammed or helping the people who were having to deal with people being scammed. So it went from just being this fun thing to an actual, I'm helping people now. Wow. So that's kind of interesting. That's kind of flips it over, doesn't it? Yeah. What kind of people get in touch with you? So what kind of problems do they present you with? It could be all sorts of problems because we cover all online scams. It could be somebody who's been the victim of a sex sextortion scam. This week we had somebody whose mother is being scammed by a romance scammer and he's asked us to help prove that it's a scammer. Somebody may have a an email and they're not sure if it's genuine or not and they could come to us. Right. It's basically if you have any question at all about online scams, you can come to us on Scam Survivors, ask us the questions, and we will try to help you. And do people kind of ask you to, like, bait a scammer? Is that typically something that they still request? It does happen from time to time. Not as much these days because we have so much information that we are now able to say, yes, it's definitely a scammer. 
and here's why, because they've said this or they've done that. Right. So there's less having to prove to them through baiting the scammer and now more, this is how the scammers work. They've done this, they will be doing this next. So it's become easier through yeah. time because I, I've been doing this for 13 years now. I have 13 years worth of knowing what the scammers do. Yeah, and how they operate, just studying yeah. it every day. Yeah. What's your relationship with the authorities? Are they fans of scam survivors or do they uh, turn a blind eye? Or It depends. We work, for example, with the Better Business Bureau. Uh, Steve Baker in the Better Business Bureau is a really nice guy. We've worked with him on a bunch of things. For the most part, we do get on with law enforcement. Mm-hmm. We've had the FBI, Met Police, uh, NCIS Norway contacted us asking for help. Do you feel that people are more aware of scams today than ever before? Or do you think we're still sitting ducks? I think people are aware of the traditional 419 scams. Another kind of, uh, we've got this money, you just need to pay this amount and then we'll send it to you. They, everybody knows that. You see comedians doing it on shows, for example. But it's the newer ones that are coming up or the, the cleverer parts of the scams that people aren't aware of. Uh, for example, with a romance scam, everybody says, don't send money to somebody you've never met online. But then what they're doing now is creating fake career companies. And they say, well, I've sent you some presents. And then the courier company says, oh, we need these extra admin fees or whatever. So you're not giving that person money. You're just covering the costs to receive something yourself. Right. So it's it's a constant having to keep up with the new things that are happening and educate the public on those. Is your job rewarding? Because you're anonymous, right? So it's not like you have lots of people high-fiving you for your work in real life. Does that pose questions for you? Do you ever kind of think, oh, I wish I could claim this? Um, well, we, we kind of accept that that's how it is. We have, for example, on our sextortion form, there's an option there where you can leave feedback and sometimes we get some really nice feedback on there. But yeah, we, we appreciate the fact that people aren't going to be able to phone us up and say, oh, you're doing a great job. That, that's just how it is. We are able to sleep at night knowing that we've done this, that we've been able to help people. And that's enough for us. We don't get paid for doing this. I'm the only one of the group, really, who does any kind of media stuff. And they must be very grateful that you do this because it helps spread the word. What advice do you have? If you've got your finger on the scam pulse, so to speak, what is the most modern advice that you can give them that they may not have had before in terms of avoiding scams? I think every bit of advice has been given before. It's that whole trust you get if it seems too good to be true. But I think, if anything, it's be willing to learn about the new scams that are coming out. Because as I said earlier, anybody knows about the old ones. Be willing to learn, be willing to admit that you don't know everything and come to people like us at Scam Survivors at other sites as well and try to suck in as much knowledge as you can because there are so many people out there with this knowledge willing to share. So if you want to know about these scams, you may know so much, but there's also so much more to learn about. Maybe for IT administrators, this is particularly important because they're, of course, not just looking after their own systems, but that of the entire company. So for them to stay really on top of this by checking out sites like yours is a great way to do it. Yeah. And if anybody wants to come to us, ask us any questions, we're always quite happy to speak to people. Well, Wayne, thank you very much. This has been very enlightening. No problem. Thank you for the chance to uh, to speak about it. (laughs) You know, I got to come clean. 
before I spoke with Wayne, I don't think it ever occurred to me that there would be tons of people out there worried about their loved ones being duped by an online scammer. And that that would be a huge area where support like what Wayne is offering is needed. I mean, think about it. He has taken on the job of trying to prove to people that they are being fished by giving them evidence and giving them examples of it happening before. Boom, I say. So if you have a loved one that you're concerned about, don't despair. Check out Scam Survivors. And of course, tell them to listen to this podcast. This was Carol Terrio for Hacking Humans. Interesting stuff, huh, Joe? Yes. Number one, Wayne is a fan of Red Dwarf. So, <laughs> so uh, to, kudos to Wayne. That puts him up in my book. Right? <laughs> okay, very good. I, I love that show. Wayne is doing good work here, and it is a shame that he will never get to hear it from people that he impacts. But I'll tell him and, the, and his friends over there at Scam Survivors that this is good work, yeah. and it's, it, it's important work, and it needs to be done. Mm-hmm. I find his story about how he got into it very interesting. He just stumbled across scam baiting and then just worked into helping people out. Yeah, it became was, almost like a hobby for him. Right. Yeah. It's also interesting that Scam Survivors has amassed enough information about these kind of scams. That they can tell you, yes, this is a scam. Here's what's going to happen next. You show somebody that kind of predictive power just because you're familiar enough with these scams and familiar with how they work and you know the patterns. If you can tell somebody that here's what's going to happen next, that is going to be immensely powerful in helping them realize that they're in a scam. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I had a friend who was uh, dealing with some unwelcome advances from a coworker mm-hmm. to the point where she was talking to the police about it. Really? Yeah. And uh, so she tells me she's having this conversation with a police officer and the police officer's like, so did he do this? And she says, yeah. And then he did this. Yeah. And then after that, he did this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> like, like like the police officer knew every single step along the way. Right, he knew and the pattern. It, he knew the pattern. Right. And to her, this was just, you know, it was great for her to hear that because she, she knew it's not just me, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, right. that these things have patterns. And this police officer knows what he's talking about. And, you know, hopefully he's going to be able to help me because he has a sense for where it's going to go from here. Right. Yeah. Right. And now he can uh, intervene before anything gets too far. Right. The advice, he says, trust your gut, is good from the outside perspective. Yeah. So if we looked and saw that somebody we knew was getting scammed and we had a gut feeling that they were getting scammed, that's good advice. But from the inside, your gut feelings may not be accurate. Mm -hmm. Right. So I would say also that for anybody who's listening, that you have to have the ability to be wrong. Mm. You have to understand that you could be wrong. Mm-hmm. I would also say have a trusted friend, right. family member, whatever, that you're willing to go to for a gut check. Right. Yep. That's also good advice. Sometimes just explaining this to another person, as we've talked about before, is enough to make you realize, oh, yeah, this is a scam. Yeah. I should have seen this. But now that I'm telling you about this, it's obviously a scam. Yeah. That's one of the big things. You get out of your shell. Talk to people. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the big red flags that we talk about in scams and and actually in all kinds of different things, you know, it's one of the first things I told my kids before they went to school is look for the red flag. Let's keep this between us. Mm-hmm. That should be a huge red flag. There's no reason for that usually except to isolate you to keep you away from family and friends, to talk about it with other people. Yeah. So if you see that, if you hear that, let's. this is our little secret. Let's keep this between us. 
let that be a uh, a red flag for you. Yeah. Thanks to Carol Terrio for bringing this to us. Really interesting stuff. Again, thanks to Wayne. I have to say, uh, Wayne has a lovely accent. Yes. Almost as nice as some of mine. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we appreciate him coming on. And, and as we both said, uh, really great work here and uh, good stuff. So uh, thanks to him and all that they're doing. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our editor is John Petrick. Technical editor is Chris Russell. Our staff writer is Tim Nodar. Our executive editor is Peter Kilby. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 